Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute. Dialing down, optimizing third-generation treatments for CML. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. What is the optimal dose for BCR-ABL1 TKIs for the treatment of chronic myeloid leukemia? Dr. Gerald Radich and Dr. Michael Morrow discuss this as well as treatment duration and other considerations for using third-generation therapies. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Radich is professor in the Clinical Research Division of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. Dr. Morrow is a professor of medicine and leader of the Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program in the Leukemia Service, Department of Medicine, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Radich will begin our discussion. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Morning, Jerry. Amazingly enough, I'm commuting to work in a hot air balloon today. Just a novel approach. So it's, yep, there's the boy again. I heard the gas. Yeah, you're, you're yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's a stunning scene from up here. So great to, to run into you again. Um, so it's, uh, what, if, you, if it's you and me, we're talking all CML all day, man. So um, one thing that I think is really interesting I want to talk about is um, how relatively lousy we are in picking tyrosine kinase doses. And the example that I would give first with, is with imatinib, uh, where there's, I think, some thinking now in retrospect that maybe 600 was the right dose. You know, kind of in midpoint between 400 and 800, they kind of got the best bang for your buck without undue toxicity. I think there's some believers out there. Um, certainly, disadvantage. We've been all over the globe, right? We start, <laughs> we start with 140 dailies and 70 BID, right, and then 100. And now there's some promising data out there um, that 50 milligrams a day is quite effective uh, with disadvantage because you know you get m- more people taking the drug without interruptions, and, and they seem, seem to be quite promising. And we know the tail of panatinib, right, which um, is, may have started up a little bit higher than they needed to and kind of was the death of uh, one company. Um, and it's, it's particularly interesting that in a drug like, like Satinib, where, you know, the half-life of the drug is two hours. So, like, how the heck is it a once-a-day drug? So I guess that, that brings us to what in your practice is your actual starting dose for all these drugs? For a usual person that walks off the street for matinib, nilotinib, uh, panatinib, you know, basutinib, what do you actually do? And and what kind of indications do you think about if you're going to do a higher dose or lower dose, et cetera? Yeah, I, I think what you just stated, it, it, it tells this story about how we've grown up in this TKI era with CML. I think, you know, roll back the, roll back the clock, 1998, 99, Phase one, Amanda, it's chemotherapy day still, you know, we don't have targeted therapy. So we're all worried about not maxing it out, you know, just hitting the the steep part of the curve, get to the top and don't go no further. And, you know, didn't know what we could do. Wow. 300, 400 milligrams starting at hematologic cytogenetic remissions. Then we chose you, you, I know you were, you were a key player, you know, 
birthing major molecular remission as a landmark and uh, you know making decisions. I was I was a little I was a little newer in the field, but I was under Brian Drucker's wing, and you know we were rolling patients on a study, and I think we learned a lot of things there. Um, but then you know quickly you you told the story about the second gen inhibitors like Tysandam and Nalanib, where we went kind of guns a blazing. Let's go full dose, you know, full potency because we really want to do even better. We were eager, and not greedy, but I would say eager to do even better than we did with Amantinib because it was so good, but it wasn't perfect. And then we had to throttle back. You know, I think Nalanib, we started with two doses right out of the gate that were well tolerated in early studies or it made sense based on the half-life. Um, but And then you mentioned the story with the Sandib's half-life. That didn't actually make sense. You know, could you just inhibit the kinase for a short period of time and 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 do what you needed to do? Indeed, we could. And then... And then it got even, you know, then it got a little bit more complicated with the drugs that came after that. Pseudonib was, you know, had its own intrinsic toxicity concerns, very good drug, but clearly the higher doses were, you know, brought more challenges and Panana brought probably the most serious challenge. So that was my long-winded editorial for your, your, your wonderful remarks. <laughs> but um, I could have just stopped by saying that my favorite dose of modified dose yeah, is 600 milligrams of mantinib. I think I'm really, I was always impressed by the um, data that the Australian groups generated showing that if you wanted to be efficient with a mantinib, you could perhaps use um, a, this dose optimization type approach, start standard or start a little bit higher and then optimize only those that need to. And in the end, you'd still have half people using a mantinib and doing really well and basically matching what you could do if you had started everyone on a second generation inhibitor. And you'd probably spare a lot of people some of the potential side effects it could have had. So my office and my, my clinic, I'm talking often about dose-optimized amandib. To be honest with you, I mean, I think I, um, I think we have to be cautious with nilanib. I'm glad we have the lower dose um, as our starting dose because there is a little bit of a dose response and um, well, but there's also a little bit of a dose toxicity effect there. Um, we mentioned in an earlier podcast about pesutinib um, and how the you know the assemble trial versus assimilative set us up for a little bit of trouble there. So I think we acknowledge we can get to the full doses of pesutinib, but we may want to start lower. Um, and then and then you 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 definitely uh, shed some, some major sunshine on the desantinib story. We've gone from 140 down to 100, and some people believe we should be down to 50 now. And uh, we, we probably both have a lot of patients on you know kind of ranges of doses of desantinib just to. Uh, to keep them well and uh, in stable remission. So, uh, and then we got new new drugs on the horizon with even you know with interesting dosing schemas too. So, just to think about panatinib for a moment. Um, you know, there's various strategies that, that people employ, right? Some start low, work their way up. Some start high, work their way down. Some start in the middle and then you know go, you know, up or down. And and I think some of that depends on the toxicity you know, the comorbidities of the patient and whether you want to live with the potential toxicity, especially cardiovascular, um, but also the duration of therapy that you anticipate, right? So it's, so it's if, if someone's getting a third-line therapy and has you know, no anticipation of going to transplants, this is going to be their drug for life unless you move to a, a synonym. That's one strategy versus if it's just a bridge to transplant, you just want to kind of debolt them, right? Um, yeah. So how do, you, how do you think that through? Um, if, if you had a patient where you're thinking about panatinib, do you basically just say, forget it, I'm just going to do a simonib and, and go from there? Or do you say, yeah, I'm going to give it a try at, at whatever dose you prefer, and then if it doesn't work, go to a simonib? Um, how do you work that through in your brain? Yeah, I'm a little vexed by this problem because 
I think we've learned that Panandum needs to be have its dose lowered once we get into response. But I'm I'm eager to get patients into very good re- responses. So I'm, I'm I like to wait until they're in a deeper remission. And I think the recent trials with Panandum, you know, we went back to a dose funding trial essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty far down the road to do that, but yeah. Okay. Well, sometimes you got to go back a little bit to the to the drawing board and say, all right, let's just revisit this. But we learned uh, that 45 milligrams probably really is still the optimum starting dose. So that um, means we have to risk stratify and, mod- and manage the toxicity. We, we got to play by the rules and think about dose reduction. And you brought out those two scenarios. You know, do you want to bridge someone or do you want to really kind of try to get them into safe harbor? Um, either way, I think you got to start at the full dose. The trouble with CML is you don't want to save drugs for the rainy day, you know, for the, for yeah, the yeah, yeah. someone's progressing. It's not antibiotics. You know, I think we've learned that strategy um, clearly. We know it's cancer. I mean, I, I don't want to simplify it too much, but um, but sometimes we worry about that. I mean, you know, we're, we're leery. So I think you just have to walk carefully, you know, tiptoe through the tulips um, and uh, choose the right dose based on the data, um, risk stratifying the patient, so in either situation, I probably want to use full dose panandib because I want to get both patients to the you know to the finish line, whether it's to safe transplant with disease control or maybe longer term disease control. One of my most challenging questions is what about long term panandib, and that's why Simonib really yeah. did offer a little bit of a of a you know a, a diffusing capacity because it may have slightly different niches that it's going to be performing best. Um, panandib is still a very good drug, um, but Simonib really offers some advantages. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're really going to have to be talking about long-term panatinib now that the symptoms are right, right? If, they, if somebody has to be on that long, maybe they shouldn't be on in the first place. That sounds like a trial. We should talk after the podcast. Yeah, we should, we should be a trial. Um, so one thing you brought up, though, is, is really a, a very interesting philosophical point. I think it's how patients or how doctors deal with these diseases. Um, and, and I think sometimes because there are so many choices in CML, um, we maybe don't think this through carefully enough. Right, so there is the infectious disease approach world, right, where you basically save your best drug for your back pocket, right? Yeah. Um, and then you've got the oncology uh, perspective, and I'm sort of not the average bear there, since I'm a transplanter, which is basically, you know, go everything big first, right? And, and I, I do sometimes worry like you that sometimes we piddle around a little bit um, with, with, you know, because we have so many options, but I say you have to think that um, and CML, the clock's ticking, right? In the old days when they weren't given therapy, everyone went into blast crisis after about three, four years. It's a fatal disease. And so um, they still have malignancy. And I think especially once my worry has always been with this disease is that resistance may be forever. Like yeah. you, once you become resistant, you're all going to have multiple clones. It's going to be like whack-a-mole. And one of those is going to have a progression profile that's going to be you know your end. So I think that my perspective, I think chiropractic cure is once things don't go right on path, it's time to maybe not panic, but really think seriously that you've got a, a different disease here now. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, that's why I use that philosophy, you know, the rainy day approach. I think it really can rain pretty hard. It rains pretty hard in Seattle. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I and I still keep thinking, you know, about that. There's been a few papers out there, well, here, things like gene expression profiling, where if you take people who are resistant to these drugs and you take people who have advanced phase disease, their gene expression profile is also pretty darn similar. Yeah. So even though the disease looks like chronic phase to the pathologist, it, that's not really what's going on in the cell. So the, we, the clock is ticking. 
our best strategy is going to be to is to manage CML before the, the, the switches get thrown and patients have um, resistance mechanisms, just like you mentioned. That, that, that work is in, incredibly intriguing, Jerry, the expression profile work. I know you've done some of this where you see that chronic face patients can look like blast crisis, um, uh, just, you know, wolf in, in sheep's clothing, I guess, for a little while, and then, and then it, it's off. And then, you know, the, the story about what other mechanisms may be underneath, you know, are there, are there yet other things that we, we could see you know, in the spectrum of myeloid mutations, I think there's some interesting questions there. But um, so, yeah, so when we're talking about do dialing down the dose here, we don't want to miss the boat on choosing the right drug. We don't want to underdose the drug and not, right. you know, for the sake of toxicity. Um, we, we need to remember to dose increase or dose optimize and not overplay the sparing patients from toxicity, although that is extremely important and it's literally like right there. With, with efficacy and remission is, is sparing people toxicity. But I, I'm sure you see folks in the clinic that have been whittled down to, to non-therapeutic doses as well. So we have to be careful there. I'd rather see someone get switched to a drug, you know, fit them to the drug that they can tolerate, that's gonna get their disease under control and not allow them to have the switches get thrown and, and develop advanced. So. As one of my old mentors used to say, um, quality of life is only important if you're alive. Well said, it, yeah, it, it goes from 100 to zero. Yeah, uh, and that just really—I mean, it's a little bit of a just a kind of a commentary, but um, you know, we got to do a better job talking to our patients to them running a marathon of CML, too, because it's uh, it's long. You know, even the patients that are doing are doing well. The studies of dialing down the dose and thinking about the dose are looking at optimizing once you're in remission. Pananib has a schema. Other drugs, there's been good data. You know, the Nilo Red trial, you know, looks at um, reducing nilotinib dosing. You know, in for patients that are you know, approaching a TFR stance. I think that's some nice data. The desantinib dose reduction upfront, uh, you know, some have looked at optimizing desantinib dose uh, based on drug levels, based on response, based on certain cell populations like the elderly. Um, there's a lot of good information out there. Um, I, I always try to say to people that start, by, start with the label and then go from there and, and look at your patients and, um, you know, and do the best you can. Michael, I'm going to have to wrap up here. You might, might hear we're, we're kind of being blown off course here, you know, our balloon here, and the guy's kind of panicking with the, the deal, so. Hi. Dial down that altitude, Jerry. <laughs> it seems to be dialing it down itself. <laughs> Cross your fingers. Good luck. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML3. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app for your iPhone. Thank you for joining us today.